This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore and I am joined by my co-host, Kasiji Mudabalaish. <laughs> I have no idea. However... That was amazing. Can we just say that was amazing? It was. That name was a uh, shout out to Barry Pearman, who joined the Facebook group that we talked about last week. And uh, that's the name that he used when thanking Steve. And uh, <laughs> I told him I'd give it my best shot to pronounce. So I have no idea how to pronounce that. But there you go. Oh, man. Steve, right. how are you doing this week? You know what? I'm a little sassy today, but... Uh... But I'm doing good. Yeah. Is that a good. is that a lack of sleep thing? I know you were at work pretty late last <laughs> night. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, yeah, I'm. I don't. I'm a little fired up. This. I, mm, I can't get on social media or watch the news anymore. Like I, I quit all that. I I think that's probably fair. I've tried to like be really intentional about scaling back how much news and things that I look at like in a row per day because I get frustrated at you know yeah. a variety. Yeah, of I'm things worn out. And, I'm worn so, slap out. Yeah. Like, do you – we can talk about this. I think we've talked about it before. We can talk about it again. We really need to have an episode on the impact of social media, uh, social media addiction, if that's a, such a thing, and what it does to your mental health. Because I scan social media, and I watch the news, and like, okay, I'm certain that we are now in the handbasket, and it is getting hot. Well, I was going to say there are – Jean Twenge. She's done some studies uh, recently revolving around particularly like adolescent youth, like social media use and things like that, and like rates of depression and anxiety and things like that. But I mean, another route to even think about it is like the impact of news and and things like that, which kind of relates to the episode we're going to talk about today. We talk about some things kind of related to that. But I mean, there was a, I think, Psychology Today article a while back, a couple weeks ago, that was constant streams of negative news can impact your mental health and things like that. I mean, it's it seems to be maybe common sense that if you're just bombarded with negative things that are frustrating or distressing to you consistently, that's going to take its toll, you know? I think yeah. one, one of my biggest problems with even local news, you know, it's always, hey, this local store is trying to murder you in your sleep or whatever. Like, it's always, like, very negative. Even the promos are like, you better tune in at 11 because all the bread in Georgia has rats in it. Like, it's all, <laughs> it's always something like that, you know? Well, you got to watch out for that ratty bread. <laughs> hey. It'll you know, get you. Add a little protein. <laughs> so gross. Hey, it's Friday. It's, what sure. This is what you get when we record on Fridays. <laughs> it's 8.30 on Friday morning. I've only had one cup of coffee. What are you doing to me? I don't, it's 9.30 here, and I've had no coffee. So, Yep, you're on fast time. We're on slow time. You know what we call that? That's what we call it here. What about the other, what do you call Pacific time? You don't want to know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
It would make your mama blush. It might. I think she listens to the show. If so. Hey, mom. Hey, mom. Mom. Mine doesn't. That's okay. Did we? I we we joked around for a second about the Facebook group, but like for real, you should join the Facebook group. It's getting active and like filling up. We're, yeah. we're adding people like every day, which is so much fun, y'all. It's like it's the best dollar you'll ever spend. That's true. We actually might have talked about it more. I probably cut some of it down. I posted this in that Facebook group, actually. The intro to last week, we, you and I recorded upwards of 20 minutes for that intro. And so I just had to cut out whole discussion topics to make sure that we didn't go on and on in the beginning. Hey, how's a little mama and a little baby? They're doing well. They're doing well. They're <laughs> pretty active in there. Is that how you're going to edit it? That you're going to cut all that we just said and say they're doing well? Absolutely. That's amazing. People, y'all missed it. That's all I'm saying. You missed it. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, oh. <laughs> no. Good. That's all I got. What the heck just happened? Oh, that's amazing. Well, all right. <laughs> oh, I am so tired. How How are your kids? Oh, you know, they're great. Ben is uh, Ben's a little reader. 27 books this month. I'm kind of impressed. And then Caroline, you know, Caroline's three and a half going on 37. Going to be older than you soon then. Yes. Yeah. My birthday's coming up. What you getting me? I can't tell you. Oh, okay. All right. Hey, you want to talk about the episode? I guess. Oh, well, we don't have to. No, it's such a good one. This is such a good one. It is such a good episode. It really is. I was very excited. I mean, you and I both got to sit back a little in this one. Uh, which is awesome. We love that. So we got to talk with Dr. Amber Thornton and Dr. Sherry Moloch, who you might remember from our suicide prevention episode. Uh, We got to talk some about uh, the intersection of race and faith and mental health. And it is probably one of the most illuminating episodes we've had yet, I think, for me personally, just to get to hear experiences that you and I can't necessarily relate to, won't ever probably experience just to, to hear from, I don't know, just a whole different perspective about current events as we talked about some, uh, you know, what the impact that some of that has on various cultures and races and things like that. I don't know. I, I learned a ton. So good. So helpful. You know, I, I think it's cool because we cover the mental health stuff, but we cover a good chunk of, of non-mental health stuff, stuff that just applies to absolutely anybody and things mm-hmm. that folks with privilege that were born with privilege, um, we need to hear. We can't hear enough of. So yeah, really, really good. All right. Well, here you go. Enjoy this episode. Always good to have you. Kasiji Muda Baliash. Sure. Glad to be here. <laughs> I literally have no idea how to say that. Hey, welcome back to the show. Uh, as I was going to say, as always, but not as always. So it's a somewhat of a special treat. I am joined today by Dr. Stephen Austin. Dr. Austin. <laughs> That's fantastic. I can only wish to be as esteemed as these brilliant ladies that we have on today. Not a doctor, but how are you doing today, Steve? I only play one on TV. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited about this conversation. We are also joined today by Dr. Sherry Moloch, who some of you might remember from our suicide prevention episode. Dr. Moloch currently serves as an associate professor and director of training 
of Clinical Psychology at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and her research areas include suicide risk and protective factors in African-American youth, mental health treatment seeking behaviors in African-American adolescents and young adults, uh, suicide and HIV prevention programs in faith-based communities, and more. Uh, she and her husband are also the founding pastors of the Beloved Community Church in Maryland, and last time she was with us, she mentioned that she was a proud grandmother as well. Dr. Moloch, how are you doing today? Great, and I also have a new grandbaby today. <laughs> All right. Oh, exciting. Like literally yes, today? Literally today. She's oh born at 2 o'clock, uh, Aaliyah Josiah. That's so exciting. Well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. For our second guest today, we are also joined by Dr. Amber Thornton. Dr. Amber Thornton is a licensed clinical psychologist currently practicing in the Knoxville, Tennessee area. She has a bachelor's of science and a doctorate of clinical psychology. Her clinical interests vary and include child and adolescence, college counseling, family systems, and diversity and multiculturalism, as well as a bunch of other things. Uh, she's most passionate about providing services to marginalized and underserved communities. And she is the host of her own podcast uh, that's titled A Different Perspective, which I have enjoyed listening to. I've learned a lot from. So Amber, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Aside from that bio there, is there anything that I missed for either of you that you really want our listeners to, to know about? Nope. I think mine is, you covered it well. All right. Steve, do you have a fancy bio you want me to read? No, nah, I'm good. Just glad to be here. You know, I haven't been on in a while, so it's uh, it's true. fun to be back and, and hanging out with you and especially with such an important episode. So glad to be here, sir. Yeah, I wasn't going to read your bio anyway, so that's uh, Yeah, that's good. thanks, you jerk. Let's do this serious conversation, whatever. <laughs> so uh, today we are having a conversation around kind of a new intersection. So obviously the show typically is the intersection of faith and mental health. Today we are kind of doing a three-level intersection, which probably isn't an actual thing, but around race and faith and mental health. So we've got some experts here that know more about this type of thing than Steve and I do obviously, because we don't know very much of anything, I would guess, just in general. <laughs> That's why we have on smart people. <laughs> it's true. Uh, so I guess first to, to start off with, I had a question about kind of preferred terminology, right? Because I know, Sherry, when you publish your work, you use the term African-American. Amber, on your website, you use the terms black and person of color. So for Steve and I, who are just two uh, white guys who are trying to enter some into some of these conversations, is there any kind of preferred terminology or, you know, cause we, we have listeners who want to make sure they use respectful language and things, but do you have any, any thoughts around that? Um, I think, I don't know what Amber um, thinks about it, but in research land, <laughs> we use African-American for people who are of African descent, who are Americans or U.S. citizens. And the term black is used more generically to refer to people who are not only African-Americans, but could be from anywhere in the diaspora. So it could be people who are Caribbean-American, for example, or Caribbean. It could be people on the African continent. So that's the differentiation I make. So to me, those are two distinct groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would just echo the same thing. Um, that's kind of how I teach it when I, I also teach an African-American psychology class. I forgot to mention that. And that's the distinction I make. Um, I'm glad that um, Sherry is a researcher because I'm a clinician. And so I was going to say in clinical land or when I'm <laughs> in clinical work, um, 
my tendency is to always ask the client, mm-hmm. you know, how they prefer to be identified or how they identify, um, because sometimes they have their own ideas of who they are and what their identity is. But that's generally how I think of it, too. So mm-hmm. you mentioned something there that you teach an African-American psychology class. And I have if I was willing to bet, I would guess that we're going to have some listeners or, you know, when you have these types of conversations, there are people going to come out and say, hey, there shouldn't necessarily be differences in how we talk about mental health or faith, for that matter, for different cultures or different communities. Right. We're all just people. But since you both research and talk about specific cultures and things, I assume you would disagree. So why is it necessary to talk about differences in between cultures, especially in mental, mental health and faith areas? Yeah. Well, I think um, I, think I love um, Amber already. <laughs> so I teach a class of multicultural psychology. <laughs> so we're kindred spirits. Yes. And, and I think that there's a misconception that, um, that mental health and mental illness is universally experienced and expressed the same. And there's lots of research that indicates that's not necessarily the case. One, we know that um, different cultural groups may actually express symptoms differently. Uh, A good example of that is in depression, um, African-Americans and Asian-Americans are more likely to have, to talk about physical complaints like body aches and pains, as opposed to talking about feeling sad and blue. Um, So there are those differences, but also, you're assuming that even the um, the concepts mean the same thing in different cultures, and even that is not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Yep, they're very true. I agree, and I think one thing that I always come back to is socialization. I think sometimes in psychology world, you know, we have these theories, and one is this theory or this idea of universalism that everything is the same. But the way that I think of psychology or clinical work or mental health is that we are all socialized in different ways based on different parts of our identity and race is definitely one of them. Um, And so because of that, just, you know, like Sherry said, we think about things different. We experience things different, you know, different words have different meanings, even the way that, you know, one might experience faith and religion. It it can be very different based on your identity. So, can we can we dive into some of that, some of those differences? Because, um, you know, Robert and I are coming from a place of privilege. We're straight, white, cisgender, middle class, Christian men. You can't get more privileged than that. <laughs> My God. Um, so so would either of you mind diving into, um, especially from let's come from a, a place where we're just talking about culture. Um, and and maybe expound on the differences in how we should approach the topics when we're talking about different cultures. So I, I think even using the word culture, you have to be careful because I think we tend to equate culture with race and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. But there's also um, gender. The gender has a profound effect on mental health seeking behaviors and also to some degree on what we call gender scripts about how things are um, expressed. So, for example, we know that um, women are more likely to attempt suicide, but men are more likely to complete suicide. And that has something to do with some people think are called gender scripts, which means that men are more likely to um, engage in methods that are um, lethal than women are. So that's an example. Culture can also have to do with sexual orientation, 
culture can also have to do with um, geographic regions of where you live. <laughs> so even the term culture is very broad and can mean different things. And we can also be members of different cultural groups at the same time. So that's the intersectionality part. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating totally. to me. <laughs> I'm just going to agree with everything she says. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm laughing because I just, I'm teaching this class as we're speaking. So my students are doing blogs. They're due today <laughs> about oh, these topics. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, last time Dr. Molak was on, she was on with uh, Dr. Jonathan Singer, who hosts the Social Work Podcast, and they became good friends too. So uh, Sherry, just come on the show anytime. We'll we'll help make you some new Thank friends. Thank you. And, You're just <laughs> making some new friends. Thank you. <laughs> So are there different views, obviously, of mental health within different races and things, but then also about mental health services, like willingness to go seek treatment of different types or or things like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Yeah. I I was going to say the first thing that it makes me think of is, you know, I think specifically within um, Black or African-American communities, there is a huge amount of stigma um, about mental health and what it means to go talk to someone about mental health. And I know that generally in just America, even there's stigma, but I think there's this unique cultural stigma in Black communities about mental health because it means um, for many of the people in that community that there's something wrong or that they're weak or that um, they're not doing something right. And especially when you integrate the faith aspect, it then means too that there's something wrong with my faith. And and that can cause a lot of confusion and a lot of sadness, a lot of guilt. Um, so there are a lot of different, a lot of different ways that mental health is thought about based on race and culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I think um, I was at a conference for the United Church of Christ this past weekend. It was our regional conference. And I was at a, a, a workshop on mental health, speaking and faith. And so one of the issues, as Amber said, is this, when the faith community gets involved, it's not just becomes a mental health crisis, it can also be a, a crisis of faith. And so the other unfortunate thing is that we a lot of time get messaging in the Christian church that it's not okay to seek help. And I was giving examples of things that people kind of say, kind of off the cuff sometimes, not really thinking about the implications of what people say. So people will say, you know, you don't need a psychiatrist, you just need Dr. Jesus. <laughs> yet, you know, one of the terms that we have for Jesus is mighty counselor. And the Greek word for counselor in those, in those texts is not lawyer. It's like counselor, like helper. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and so one, every time you make those kinds of off the cuff comments or use cliches, those are, there are people who were in the congregation who are now not going to seek help because whether ministers realize it or not, the words that they say hold a lot of power. And so the church, one of the reasons we're trying to do the interventions in churches is that the church is a great place to change norms about mental health seeking. And it's a very powerful way because sermons and teachings are designed to be very persuasive and they're really designed to, to, to influence an audience after one hearing, just one time. And, and in that sense, it's very different than other kinds of speech events that you might be exposed to. Um, so I think that's really important. But it's not just in African-Americans. It's one of my students is doing a study on um, South Asian college students. Same thing happens where 
Um, students are really struggling sometimes, but um, don't want to um, go to seek help seeking or engage in mental health treatment because they're one, they're afraid their parents will find out too. They're afraid that their parents will worry about something's really wrong with them. And if they're in a culture that really doesn't embrace mental illness or doesn't really embrace that it's okay to go outside your family and talk to strangers about per- very, very personal things, then they're kind of struggling with what, where do they go? Yeah. And one thing that I noticed, and you might notice this too, and research tells us this too, is that a lot of times with um, people of color, um, and I see this with the clients that come see me, a lot of the times my Black or African-American clients come in with a lot higher severity of symptoms because they've waited so long. Um, And this happens a lot because of that pushback against mental health and mental health treatment. Um, Treatment is delayed. And then they're coming in at crisis and and that can feel really discouraging and can also be even more difficult to provide treatment and proper service. So that's definitely an issue. Yeah, I definitely agree with Amber. I think um, that's the one thing I think is I'm also a clinician by training that breaks your heart. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's partly why I think when I did the workshop on Saturday, I was saying, you know, we really need to prevent try to work on prevention a lot because the, the bottom line is if we don't get people to recognize signs and symptoms much earlier, you're right. People, by the time they come to see you, they're barely making it. And so you might be thinking as a clinician, wow, I should have seen you nine months ago. You know, yeah. you wouldn't be in this predicament right now. And it's also, you would be, you would feel better faster and mm-hmm. there would be less um, negative consequences in other areas of your life. So by the time people come in, you know, things are off. Usually people come in when they can't make it anymore Mm. and they can't come to class anymore. They can't go to work anymore. Their relationships are falling apart. And as a clinician, you're thinking, now we didn't have to be in this space. We could have gotten things. We could have helped you get things going better much, much earlier, I think. And that's where this, you know, changing norms about help seeking and decreasing stigma are really important because Mm. that's that's a big factor and whether or not people will seek treatment in the first place. Yeah. And another thing, well, I know, I know I'm keep picking backing, but um, that makes me think of another thing too. When you, I think you all asked, um, how do we think about these things differently based on race or other elements of culture? And I know within black and African-American communities specifically, a lot of times identity is based around overcoming struggle and overcoming oppression. And so what that means is that a lot of times people believe that they have to be able to endure a certain amount of struggle and pain. And that also leads to them not getting the help that they need because there's this mentality that I should be able to handle this or I should be able to do this on my own. Um, When in reality, we're human and sometimes we do need help. And I think that's another unique aspect that we see within communities of color in terms of seeking mental health and especially when you integrate that faith portion. I hear that so many times, this idea that I should be able to handle this on my own um, because, you know, I'm a strong person. I come from a strong community and and that really does impede mental health treatment. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think there's a concept called John Henryism, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like you kind of, you know, you suffer, you're very supposed to be very stoic 
you know, you've got this, you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And my joke, particularly for black women is, you know, you need to hang up your Supergirl, your, your Wonder Woman cape, because yeah. it's, you know, and I also, there's kind of a myth that our ancestors didn't have mental health challenges. What our ancestors didn't have access to was mental health treatment. Mm-hmm. We have no idea the challenges that they have in part because I look at my grandmother's generation. My grandmother was, um, had 16 children. And I was sharing with my aunt uh, not too long ago. I said, you know, she's like, well, mother never. I'm like, you know what? Your mother didn't live in a time where she would have shared those things with you. <laughs> so you don't really know what she was going through. What it was like for her to be a stay-at-home mom with 16 children? Two of them died in childbirth. Um, they, they, My grandfather, particularly for that time period, was a well-educated man and had a good job. But trying to feed 16 kids, you know, and so I'm like, there was no, um, there was no social norm to share those kinds of feelings of being overwhelmed with other people. That was really taboo. So we can't say that our ancestors didn't struggle. They did struggle. They may not have talked about it in the, in the model that used mental health terms, but certainly when we look at the other things that were going on and people having shorter lifespans and all kinds of other oppression going on, it would be, you know, I hate to say it, but it would be quote unquote crazy not to think that they were not also struggling. They yeah. probably were, but they didn't have the permission to talk about that more openly. Hmm. Yeah. So if I can ask, because one, one thing that I think I had never thought of until some some classmates and things mentioned it to me is that given that a lot of, you know, systemic things, especially in the United States, but in a lot of places have historically been slanted against different cultures, different races, right? Do you think that that plays a factor in willingness to seek treatment, right? If you see mental health professionals as part of this bigger system of, of people, people in places of power that traditionally have been not good to your culture, your race, right? Does, does any of that play a factor, do you think? Yes. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I, the story I tell about this, my dad, who is 91, bless his heart, and he's very healthy and of sound mind and everything. We have these conversations all the time. So my mom died about 35 years ago, very unexpectedly. And at one point, I think my dad was feeling a little depressed. So I asked him if he wanted to see a therapist. Now I was in graduate school when this happened. So I asked him, um, do you want to see a therapist? And he laughed. <laughs> and I said, why are you laughing? He's like, I don't need that. And I said, well, you know, you know, this is a sudden loss for all of us. I'm in therapy. It's like, you know, fine, blah, blah, blah. And my dad said, we don't do that. And so I was talking to another relative about that. And my relative said to me, you have to realize when we were growing up, my father and my mom both grew up in um, East Baltimore that their, their interactions with mental health professionals where people came to your house in a white truck and people with white coats on came and put you in a white straight jacket. And in those days, people did prefrontal lobe lobotomies. And mm-hmm. so when people came, people disapp- you know, people would be agitated, obviously, and struggling. They would see people really upset. They would get on this truck. They would go away. They would come back being very different. And my aunt described this as people came back as zombies. Mm -hmm. So even though my father knows that I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, he's very proud of my accomplishments, that image is really imprinted in his brain. There's no way my dad would ever 
seek mental health treatment. I don't care what was going on. Yeah. And so when you have those kind of abuses like that, and people will say, oh, it was a long time ago, or it didn't happen that often. It doesn't have to happen often, and it can happen a long time ago for it to be almost part of almost a historical legacy that the mental health um, treatment community has imprinted on this community. So no, people don't forget that. And the stories get told down generation to generation. So people don't forget that. Mm-hmm. That's funny. I have a very similar story with my dad. Um, a while ago, he had a, a, a heart surgery. It wasn't a major one, but he had a, a surgery. And afterwards, um, I kind of said, well, you know, you can go to therapy to you know, kind of process the adjustment. He had just gotten a um, defibrillator put in and he said, oh, he laughed. He laughed just like you said your your dad did. And he said, no, I don't need that. I'm, I'm fine. And it just was interesting that that it, it just wasn't even a consideration for him. It right. wasn't even something that he was <laughs> to consider, um, you know, but I, again, back to the question. Yes, I think that the idea that mental health is for white people is something that is very pervasive in communities of color, especially black and African-American communities. This idea that mental health challenges are a white person thing. And I think that is often something that we have to fight against because the reality is that mental health is something that everyone has. Um, and a, an example I have is that, um, so I work at a counseling center at the University of Tennessee, and I'm one of the only Black clinicians there. And a lot of the times what happens is my Black students will tell me, I don't want to come see anybody else but you because I believe that they won't understand me. They won't understand who I am. And so that becomes a huge barrier to treatment. Um, because again, this idea that they, the black students there don't believe that they will be understood or um, fully affirmed for who they are if they're not working with someone who is black. And so I, I think it's just, there's so many elements to it. The idea that this is a white person thing, but then also if I am gonna do this, it has to be with someone who understands and looks like me or I'm not gonna do it at all. There's an amazing amount of, of distrust. It's amazing mm -hmm. how, uh, and I think sometimes people think, oh, you know, we're, we're in a post-racial society now, or, oh, you know, the students at University of Tennessee go to classes with other students from all different cultures, and and uh, it's it's much better now. I'm like, right, but this is, you're sharing your a very personal history with someone else. Yeah. Um, it's a very, um, it's very intimate in some ways, emotionally, and so you'd be surprised how um, students aren't really clear that you're going to get who I am and that you're not going to pathologize me, you know, so that when I'm just sharing stuff that I'm going through, does all of that get under the umbrella of a canopy of I'm crazy? And students are very afraid of that. I think, again, the South Asian students in my student studies said that almost to a person was like, so what do you do? And also, what do you do with this information? Because those students were petrified yeah. that some kind of way this would get back to their parents. And even though we said, no, it won't, they were kind of like, yeah, but, you know, like, you know, my parents are paying for this. And we would say, right, but your transcripts don't go to them. Your grades don't go to them. So this wouldn't go to them either. They don't believe it. Mm -hmm. It's amazing what fear does, I guess, to our psyche. So, but, but wouldn't you say, Amber, I'm, I'm listening to your story about these students who, I mean, let's just say they, they don't want to go to the white therapist and in some ways, aren't they 
absolutely right. And, and I look, I'll be the guy to ask the ignorant question, but aren't they right in some ways that that the white therapist or the non-black or the non-African American therapist is not fully going to understand their experience, or is that not the right way to look at it? Help me understand that. Yeah, no, you're right. I think in some aspects they are right. You know, because I think what happens is, you know, if they were to go to the white therapist, there's going to have to be a lot more dialogue around, you know, who they are and what their community is like and um, what their different experiences with their family and, you know, the ways that they talk about things. You know, they might have to do more explaining Um, that kind of helps you know, the therapist and the client to understand one another and to build rapport. So it's totally possible that they could build rapport with the therapist and have a great experience. But I think sometimes for them, the idea of having to explain themselves, it feels like a barrier. And, you know, for them, it feels like, you know, if I can just come see you, this black clinician, you already know how I talk. You already know where I'm from. You already know these things. I won't have to do that extra step. And so I think you're right. Yeah. They are. They're, they're right. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, there's this other part where there's this assumption that I will understand everything about them. And sometimes I don't, you know, and I think that's yeah. the other part. Even within our groups, we still can't assume that we understand everything about everyone within our group. Um, and so I always like to, you know, highlight that to clients, but then also, you know, students who are in psychology, who are becoming psychologists, I want them to understand that too. We can't assume that we're going to understand everything about someone's experience because we have a, a shared experience. Um, so no, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. They, they are hesitant about that idea that they will have to go the extra mile to explain themselves because they do this in their lives every day with people around them. And, you know, it's comforting to think that I can go to my therapist and not have to explain myself and not have to um, provide this extra step. It's it's nice to just go and already be known and understood and seen. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just the shared history is great, too. And also, you know, there are metaphors that you use when you're in a, a member of a cultural community and there's a shared kind of experience that you know that the other person gets, and you don't have to go through all explaining all that. On the other hand, I do think it's important to note that um, student people, mental health professionals who are not members of a particular cultural group can be trained to be to be culturally competent. I think we certainly do that at our program at GW. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is there are not enough therapists of color. Right. So if you're going, if for if we're going to meet the mental health needs of of people from all different communities then everybody needs to be trained to be culturally competent because one particular group, particularly African-Americans, we're only 13% of the population. And we are even lower than that in terms of percentages of, of therapists, licensed therapists out there. So everybody needs to be trained to work with these groups. Right. I think the last statistic I read from the American Psychological Association was that 5% of licensed psychologists in America identified as Black or African-American uh, and right. I think the breakdown was like, mm-hmm, like 1.5% were black men and 3.5% were black women. Mm-hmm. So it's just not a lot, not enough. And that's actually an improvement. <laughs> so wow. when I was in school, which was 30 years ago, it was like, it was less than 3%. So that's actually better. Boy, oh boy. Fascinating. Can we, 
since we're we're teetering right on the edge of really talking about racism anyway, can we just go there for a few minutes? Sure. <laughs> Good. So um, a friend of the show, Andre Henry, who is a theologian and an artist, and um, he is the brand new managing editor of Relevant Magazine, he has written this phenomenal series, an essay series on medium. And he's written this, I think it's a 10 part series now. He keeps adding to it, uh, but it's called God of the Ghetto. And oh my goodness, um, eye opening. He's an amazing writer. It's, it's beautiful, but it's also for me, this white guy, hard to read. Um, so I, I, I took just a few notes from a few pieces of this series that I would love to read and just sort of get your feedback, either one of you, both of you, on on what Andre has said in regards to racism. So he says, I'll never forget being on a video call with a colleague from Bible College, now a pastor in small town Florida, who told me that, quote, racism is not a priority to God. Mm. <laughs> really? I've, yeah. I've tried to explain to these good people that such a gospel is pretty bad good news because that means that God's only solution for pain, suffering, and injustice is dying and going to heaven. And death is not good news. He went on to say that many pastors subscribe to a Christianity that divides the body from the soul. And then one final thought, he said, black Christians are discouraged from speaking up about or fighting against racial injustice because they're told that's a social issue, not a spiritual one. That's so interesting because um, so it almost defies the black church's origins. (laughs) 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 That's why I'm almost laughing. Say more. You know, I, to me, it's such a good example that sometimes black folks and white folks live in two different worlds. That, that so negates the whole ethos in some ways of the quote unquote black church, that, the, that, the, um, that part of the culture of the black church is that God is always on the side of the underdog. God is always on the side of the marginalized. And so, mm-hmm. so many black churches are very focused on social justice. It's not a coincidence that the civil rights movement was born in part out of the black church experience. And mm-hmm. so to say in that context that God is not concerned about racism or it's not a priority for God, that c- completely almost negates even the Hebrew Bible's um, testament about the Israelites coming out of Egypt, which is which is what? God is a liberating God. And that's exactly this. Yeah. What what book are you reading? (laughs) Yeah. This whole series. That's what I love. This whole series. That's exactly what he's talking about is the Exodus. The whole, this whole series is his take on the Exodus being that God is the God of the ghetto, that God is the God of the marginalized, that God is the God of those who have been displaced and ignored and oppressed. And, um, so I I would say that's one segment of Christianity, but I don't think it speaks for all of Christianity. Mm-hmm. I think that um, liberation theology is born out of focusing on the fact that God is always going to be on the side of the oppressed. And whether you focus on the Hebrew or Old Testament or the 
New Testament, and, you know, and, and in Christian context, you know, Jesus saying, I came to what? I came to give sight to the blind. He's just listing all these oppressed people. And so um, I almost want to say to have that theology, you have to completely negate what Jesus did while he was on earth, <laughs> because that's what he was doing. <laughs> He was he was liberating people from oppressive systems. And that's also why he was killed. So to say that Jesus, the God is not particularly concerned with racism, basically says to black people, we don't care about you. Mm-hmm. God is not interested in what you're God is not interested in your suffering. You need to suck it up and, and worry about what happens in heaven. Whereas other people will focus on we can have heaven right here on earth. That's the whole goal is that heaven and earth should be indistinguished. Mm-hmm. And that does mean focusing on justice. Mm-hmm. So what does, obviously we're in a, a political climate that's different than maybe in the past, or maybe it's not different, I guess, maybe it's just more overt, but when we see things like Charlottesville or kind of just blatant racism happening, what what impact does that have on faith or mental health or things like that in communities of color. I mean, to see huge chunks that seem somewhat emboldened in the past, you know, year or two, that that's got to have some kind of impact, right? Yeah. Um, I think more recently now we're seeing this term racial trauma pop up in psychology and mental health. Um, And I'm glad that I'm seeing that because I think seeing those images and hearing about these things happening, it causes fear and anxiety and people feel paralyzed and immobilized by this fear and this anxiety, in addition to feeling angry and also feeling really helpless. Um, All of those things, you know, can contribute to anxiety and depression um, and even worsening of other mental health symptoms. mental health conditions that they might have, these things can bring on trauma and traumatic stress. So these things are definitely causing huge impacts on mental health. I know I personally have had um, students see me who um, have wanted to be more active in terms of activism and social activism, but then also having trouble just managing the the consequences of what it means to be active in this way and to see these images and to take part in that type of work. It's really, really daunting and it's heavy. Um, and it's, it, it causes a lot of distress. It really yeah, does. I agree. I think um, I've been in academia and a clinical psychologist for 31 years. I have never seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I agree with Amber. We're seeing small children in particular, which is what really upsets me, who are really frightened. Um, there are children who are the children of immigrants who are scared to go to school because they're afraid their parents might be deported. We have international students who need to go home for visas, are scared that they can't get back in. So, I mean, literally some of our international students have been wondering, should they interrupt their doctoral studies because of the different policies about which uh, countries we will and will not allow to come in with visas. So I have undergraduate students as I'm speaking who are struggling with um, mental health challenges who really need to take a leave of absence so that they can kind of get themselves together emotionally, but afraid to do that because the same issue, if they go back home, they're afraid they can't come back. 
Mm-hmm. And I've never seen that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have um, j- parents who are, their kids are very stressed out and they're not sure what to do. Um, and it, what happens is the land, I don't know if you've noticed this, Amber, but the landscape, it seems like it's changing every day. So yeah. even that part feels, even for I think those of us who are in uh, professionals feel somewhat stressed because you don't even know what to tell your client because you know because no. there's a reality to it is it does change a whole lot real fast mm-hmm. so you're trying to figure that part out and you're also trying to keep everyone calm so we've had town hall meetings for our clinic our graduate students mm-hmm. we've offered support yep. um, we are um, talking to them about how to best treat their clients Mm-hmm. Um, at my church, we have people very stressed out as well. The day after the election, I had students telling me they were changing roommates. They weren't going home yeah. for Thanksgiving because family members voted a certain way. So in some ways, it's created a lot of upheaval. And our mm-hmm. church, what we try to do is really focus on we're still community. And the name of my church is Beloved Community. So one of our mottos is kind of like, how can we disagree and still stay in community. So we focus a lot on that. We've been on more marches this year in my church than all the other years combined. <laughs> so I feel like we go on a march a month. And <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, so in some ways the, the ironic benefit is that definitely as Amber said, there's a lot of activism now, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But as she also said, it's stressful for students, mm-hmm. you know, so they're I mean, I hate to say it, but as a parent of of young adult children, part of you want to say, I I want I sent you to school to go to school, yeah, you know, not to march. And so, but it's it's stressful for them. And I think you have to allow some of that because it's a way of them expressing themselves too. Mm-hmm. And I always tell them, you know, sometimes I encourage them to engage in various forms of activism because it's a way to restore some of the hope. Yeah. Because a lot of the times um, we do a similar thing at my university. We do, um, we call them like time for reflection where we um, just have a space for any student to come to reflect on. Um, we did one for the election. We did one for some of the police brutality incidents. Um, And it's a really good thing to do because I think it really helps people to come together and be able to just express, you know, all the negative feelings and the hurt, the pain that they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one thing that I noticed that there was so much hopelessness and yeah. that's when I always encourage activism because it can help them get moving or feel active in some mm-hmm. way. It helps them make, um, feel like they're making a difference. A difference they are, right. You know, they are when they engage in activism. Yeah. Um, but one thing I want to say about that, too, I think the impact with, with seeing like these images and a lot of the systemic racial things in the media, there's this collective traumatizing, too. I think with many communities of color, they are very collective groups. And so if mm-hmm. one thing happens to one person in the community, it can feel like it's happened to everyone in the community. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely the case, you know, especially when we're thinking about police brutality, you know, when we've had a a black man be killed by a police officer, it's happened to this one person, but the entire black community seems to feel it. And I think that is something to remember too, that it's a collective experience because of the shared identity. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's something that's happening too. And it's a a really big impact. Mm -hmm. And it's also, I mean, think if you're, I mean, I'm the mother of a, my, the, my uh, 
grandbaby that was just born is to my son. And so I remember raising him and just every time he went out, my husband and I would start praying. So you don't want to limit your children's activities, but I was scared for him every time he went out. And he had he was pulled over several times. He was yanked off of a Metro's um, train one time. And so, you know, as a parent, you don't want to raise your children to be afraid, but you have to tell them what to do and how to behave in the event. And I can't say the unlikely event. It's just it was it, it's kind of like for black parents, it's like a known it's a known factor that part of your socialization of your children is to teach them what to do in case they get stopped by the police. And there's a part of you as a black parent that's angry. You're like, why am I even, why am I having this conversation? It's enough to raise kids to do, go through regular adolescent development and regular emerging into adults. But in addition to that, there's this additional burden that you have to address. And no parent I've ever talked to wants to have that talk. <laughs> and yet you have to. Yeah. You know, this is one of those episodes that I know Robert and I both will have to listen back through and process. Um, and I can't say that we always listen back necessarily to process. We might listen back to see if, oh, did we miss something in editing? Uh, but wow. Um, you know, first, let me just say thank you um, to both of you for being willing to come on and and share your stories and your experience and your expertise with us. Um, I, I read a few pieces from Andre Henry uh, earlier, and um, we're friends on Facebook, and he just moved to uh, Florida to take this position with Relevant Magazine, and he moved from Los Angeles. And on Facebook, when he was ready to move, he posted – asking if there was a white friend of his who would be willing to drive with him from Los Angeles to Orlando because he was afraid, because he was scared. And this is a grown man, you know, and, and as well-behaved and clean-cut and, you know, absolutely respectful and just, I mean, there no reason for anyone to think anything questionable about this guy at all, but because of the color of his skin, he was scared to death to drive across country by himself. And that's sad. Here we are in the 21st century. I think, yeah. but you know what? I would say he was being wise. And I, my, my, if I was his mom, what I would say is drive during the daytime. To, if you can, get somebody to go with you. Yeah. So he was serious and he absolutely got a white friend to ride with him across the country. So I... I want to use that as um, as sort of a to sort of wrap up here. Um, if I had to guess, I would say ninety percent of our listeners, uh, the hosts included, have never had to experience that type of suffering that you've been talking about. We've never been scared of the police. We've never distrusted the government or the president specifically because of the color of their skin. We've never had to do anything to gain equality. We were born with privilege, and we've certainly never heard of something called racial trauma. Mm -hmm. So what would you both, if you would please honor us with a, a few minutes each, um, what would you say to white people, especially those um, in leadership, political or spiritual, what do we need to know and what do we need to do 
because of your experience. Mm. I can go first. It says, it says Amber said, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can go first. <laughs> um, I, I would say one thing that you can do that's really helpful is to use your privilege to be an ally. And what I mean by that is that sometimes when you're a member of a, of a community of color and you're talking about the suffering or the disenfranchisement or the inequality, you get these looks from people like you're just whining or, you know, that was back in the day. And I think sometimes if you try to look at things through the eyes of other people and not assume that your experience with something is universal or that your way of looking at the world is the only way to look at the world, that goes a long way. And what I mean by using your privilege is that um, there was a story a couple of years ago at, I think it was University of, of Missouri, and um, there were several black students on campus who were talking about just the racism on campus and feeling um, disenfranchised. And I remember that the, the president of the college said, you all are being overly sensitive. Mm. And there was calls for him to resign, and he specifically said, I won't resign. The members of the football team said that they would boycott the first game. And it wasn't just the mm. black players, it was the entire team, including the coaches. And within 24 hours of them saying that, the board of trustees met with the president and he resigned. And I asked my students what made the difference. And I was like, it was everybody saying as a community, this is wrong, it's unfair, it's unjust, and we're not gonna take it. And they've literally put their money where their mouth is. When the, and my assumption is, when the trustee board thought about the amount of revenue that they were going to lose if they didn't have that football game, that spoke volumes. So don't assume yeah. because you're a member of a majority community that you can't do anything to help. My students struggle with white guilt, and I tell them white guilt is not going to help anybody, okay? Well, what we need you to do is to act. Feeling guilty and saying, wow, that's really bad. And kind of slinking in the corner is not helpful. What is helpful is saying, you know what, when you when you see injustice, you can speak up against it. You can you can and, not be part of the problem. Well, what I was gonna say is being willing to to risk losing something too, because I remember that happening as a, a college football fan. I remember all that. And I remember the backlash of, you know, these kids are on scholarship. If they're not gonna play, they should have their scholarships revoked, right? I remember that aspect of it being particularly powerful to me that these students were willing to risk, you know, a full ride in a lot of cases to stand up for something right. that they thought was unjust. And why don't, and it's so interesting to me, that was so brave of them and so remarkable. And why would we not applaud that as opposed to they're on scholarship and if they don't want to play, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, look at the courage it took for them as young as they are to do that. Absolutely. Amber, I know that you have actually a podcast episode that I really enjoyed that you did called Dear White People, This is What You Can Do to Help. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But what do you what do you have to say? What can we in a little bit shorter of a format maybe than that podcast since we were coming up on time here? Yeah. But uh, what thoughts do you have for us? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to mention that episode it would be a good one for your listeners to listen to. Um, but the thing that came to mind for me is to I would encourage people to become comfortable with getting uncomfortable. And I think I say that because having the conversations about race or 
ethnicity or different aspects of culture, it can feel really uncomfortable, especially when you do have privilege and you're a part of a privileged group. And we need to be okay with having those uncomfortable conversations and those uncomfortable feelings, because when we are not okay with that discomfort, we don't get to have the conversations and, and we don't get to make the progress in that way. Um, it cuts the dialogue short and, and nothing happens because we are afraid of this discomfort. So I would say get familiar with feeling uncomfortable and getting um, getting into the dialogue about culture, diversity, race, because that's what needs to happen. So powerful. I do want to thank you both so much for joining us, for teaching us, for sharing with us your experiences. If you want to connect with these fantastic guests, you can connect with Dr. Sherry Moloch on Twitter at RevDrSherry. Uh, or I'll have her email address. I think that's what you gave us last time. Uh I can include that in the show notes again. Uh, You can connect with Dr. Amber Thornton at dramberthornton.com on facebook.com slash dramberthornton or on Twitter at dramberthornton and check out her podcast, A Different Perspective. There will obviously be links to all of this in the show notes. If you want to connect with Steve, you can find him on social media at Austin or on IamSteveAustin.com. You can find me on social media at Robert Vore or at robert vorecom Man, when we have two guests, that's a whole lot longer. I need more breaths to <laughs> get through all that. Either of you guys have closing, closing words for us today? Nope, I enjoyed the conversation, so thank you. It was fun. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much for having me again. It was again nice to meet you, Amber. And um, just thank you for being willing to have these, um, as Amber said, these uncomfortable but really central, important conversations. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you guys both so much and have a good rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.